If you have a Bible, why don't you go ahead and jump to Psalm chapter 67. It will take a moment before we arrive at Psalm 67, but we plan to get there momentarily. The biblical counseling of Sunday school ended last Sunday, and Jerry, next Sunday is Ruth starting. Okay, Lord willing, next Sunday there will be uh, the book of Ruth, and then following Ruth, do, do we, have we already spilled the beans on what's coming after Ruth? Okay, hopefully Titus, and then there's maybe Jonah somewhere on the... Man, that is a group right there. We've got Ruth, Titus, Jonah, and Nahum coming down the pike for, for the Sunday school next door. So just know that starts next Sunday, the book of Ruth in there, and we'll continue this series uh, in here. Uh, Greg, can you open us in prayer, and then uh, we will begin talking today. I would, I would say that um, the series, if you've been following the covenant, progressive covenantalism series so far, we've really been setting the stage by covering the biblical storyline uh, and the major covenant players would be Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, and Jesus. And we've walked through those for a number of months now. And now is where the how you put all this together comes to the fore. And one of the major issues, and we're going to spend, I don't know how many weeks, but a number of weeks on this point, because this is the kind of the center where all the controversy comes out of, is how are we to understand the relationship of Israel and the church? And this, is, this has caused uh, many, many, many debates and discussions in church history. How do you put the pieces together to understand the relationship between Israel and the church in light of the new covenant? And so we're, our plan today is just to begin that subject. And then we've got several weeks planned on just that topic alone. And then we'll deal with ramifications that come further downstream from that. Greg, can you open us in prayer? Yeah, let's pray. Father, uh, what a privilege to be able to gather together and study your word Lord, what a supreme treasure you've given us in the Bible. Um, Lord, help us take it as seriously as it is. It is the very written word of the one sovereign, good, triune God. Um, you have spoken. You have revealed yourself. It's of first order importance. And uh, Lord, we want to put it together rightly. And so we pray uh, today and for the next several weeks as we draw attention to uh, what your word teaches on Israel and the church God, most of all, we want to be faithful to your word. We want to be faithful to Jesus. We want to be faithful to the gospel. Um, and Lord, I pray that our love for Christ, our trust in Christ, our appreciation for his work would only grow uh, because of the things that we are considering. Um, but also, Lord, instruct us in good theology. Um, help us understand the right way to fit your word together and Lord, along the way, show grace and charity to those who would arrive at a different conclusion. Um, but Lord, uh, we thank you that you have shown it so clearly through the covenants culminating in Jesus and the new covenant. And so, God, we just pray for your help uh, to be humble and yet clear and bold in uh, these very vital matters. And so we commit our hearts and minds to you for these few moments. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we've, we've gone through these five points a number of times. We want to keep them fresh in all of our minds. So, Greg, could you just sort of read through these five points of what progressive covenantalism is to kind of get us back on the same yeah. page? Um, again, familiar territory here, but sometimes repetition is a good thing. Um, when we talk about progressive, progressive covenantalism, again, this is the 100,000-foot view. There's so much more to fill in with this, okay? But first, we have to understand what is the Bible. The Bible is God's story. Um, again, that's, that should be clear, but the Bible is about God and what he's doing. Secondly, flowing from that, God's story is about God's kingdom. I mean, that is inescapable as well. 
Um, God uh, is a king, and he will display that kingdom in his creation. Number three, what is God's kingdom about? God's kingdom is about God and his people. Um, you know, so first, Scripture is about God. Secondly, Scripture is about God's people and the relationship there, which leads us to number four, uh, how that, that kingdom is expressed and all of that. God's kingdom is carried, shaped, and implemented through God's covenants progressively throughout history. And the progressive part is what we've been trying to stress is each successive covenant builds on what came before and more clearly anticipates what is coming after. There is a, a noticeable progress in God's salvation plan and His kingdom across the covenants. And then finally, number five, God's story, God's kingdom, and God's covenants are fulfilled in the life, death, resurrection, ascension, and return of God's Son, Jesus Christ. And that's, like, like Mark was saying, we get to Jesus and then to the church, and this is where the distinctions between different interpretive systems really comes to the forefront um, and, and why saying certain things a certain way matters the way it does. Um, and so that's, that's what we're going to get into. So I won't say anything else on that point. Um, but again, progressive covenantalism uh, covenant is center, kingdom is center, progress of kingdom, and God's plan across the covenants. Um, that is what the Bible reveals. And for this next part here, again, these are just kind of some snapshots of where we're planning to go over the next several weeks. Greg, can you just read through? We won't, we won't expand or extrapolate on these right now. You, these will come into play as, as weeks come by. But the over the next several weeks section... Um, yes, there are... At <coughs> At least five areas of emphasis, and this could expand and we'll nuance things as we go. When we think about Israel and the church, um, number one, we want to see how the progress of God's plans and kingdom through the covenants mandates the church as the last and final form of God's people. Um, we mentioned this two weeks ago. We'll mention it again, and we'll go into more detail for those of you, uh, Mr. Woodard, who wanted more detail and didn't get any yet. Um, when we say the church is the last and final form of God's people, that means once the church of Jesus Christ is here, there is no further, later, different expression of God's people and kingdom than what we see right now. This is it. The new covenant was the goal. Christ was the goal. Now that the new covenant is here, Christ is here. His people are now shaped and formed by His work in that covenant. This is the final and only form we should expect of the people of God. Just on that, a big issue we're going to see is that when fulfillment comes, we don't move backwards to pre-fulfillment days. When fulfillment comes, we had shadow and then we have substance, right? We don't go back to the shadow once the substance has arrived. That, 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 may not, that may seem obvious, but as we apply that, I think you'll see it has pretty big ramifications for how we flesh some of these things out. Yes, it absolutely does. Um, number two, and this will be helpful, compare and contrast the dispensational and covenantal perspectives on Israel and the church. Uh, we're going to be much more distinct from dispensationalism than we are covenant theology simply because progressive covenantalism, you know, if you're to have it on the scale, it's going to be closer to the covenant theology view with some nuances. Um, but we're going to be further away from the dispensational view in terms of how we see the church in relation to Israel and Jesus. Um, number three, we want to see how this issue impacts Christian identity and the church's mission. 
believe it or not, <coughs> excuse me, whether you're dispensational or other is going to affect your understanding of the Great Commission. Will the Great Commission succeed? Um, is there a different kind of Great Commission? Or maybe we don't really have it yet, and there's something to come in the future um, during the seven-year tribulation and millennial kingdom. Like, where you land on these issues is going to affect your view of evangelism and missions. What should we expect to happen through our evangelistic efforts and our missions efforts to reach the world with the gospel? Uh, more covenantal um, is going to have more of a, a positive and negative view. If you're dispensational, it's pretty much negative. The church ends in failure and apostasy, and that's the end of the story um, until the next dispensation starts. And then you've got um, many in converted Israel going out and reaching the nations. I don't see that, and we're going to show why we don't think that's the case. Um, but that's one, one, um, one example there. Number four, we want to look at how this issue affects and is affected by our interpretive perspective, including, and this is so crucial, and Mark did such a great job talking about this, the New Testament priority when interpreting the Old Testament. Um, again, that, that is a huge um, category to have in place. Again, <coughs> Old and New Testaments are equally Scripture. The New Testament's not more inspired than the Old, but the New is the, the final revelation. It's where all things come together, where we get the clarity that we need to use the, the illustration that's been used so many times. It's when the lights are turned up to maximum so that we can see everything in its proper place proper connections, what it really is. Not that the Old Testament was wrong. It's just the New Testament sheds more light on the same realities, helping us understand them better. And so we're going to see how this affects how we interpret texts, books, large sections, and so on. And then number five, at some point we're going to talk about how this affects our political engagement because it does affect how we engage the world, how we engage politics, and various things like that. If, you've at, if you're at all conversant with the, the big what to do in evangelicalism in the Reformed world, Christian nationalism is, is a big hot topic. Um, how do we conceive of the state? How do we conceive of the state as Baptist? What is our role? What, what's going too far? What's not going far enough? How you put the covenants together and understand Christ, uh, the church in Israel, is going to affect how you understand your own political engagement. Um, and so as we work through these things, you're going to see, man, there's, there is, you're, you're probably going to be like, y'all, there's a whole lot more than you're covering. And we're going to say, yes, there's a whole lot more that we could, whole lot more that we could talk about than what we're going to have time to do. Because those five things in and of themselves is going to take a while. It's going to, I think it's going to be a great study. I'm thrilled to do it. Um, but as, as we're going to see, there, there, there's a lot built into this issue, and it does matter where we come down. Yeah, so just, just one little, again, this is for later on some other day, but theonomy would be the view that the Mosaic law about how the government of Israel function should be apl applicable today in, in the American government. So, so you just take the, the Old Testament law to Israel and you drop it straight into the American government. Well, we definitely reject full-blown yeah. theonomy for sure, but that would be one, one application of how all this stuff goes together. So you can see there are myriad different ways in which this stuff really does touch real life and affects yeah. a lot of different issues. So just to catch us back up to speed real quick, uh, the Old Testament ended with, and we've shown this before, deportation, exile, desertion, 
God's glory leaves the temple and destruction of Jerusalem. And then the Old Testament ends on a cliffhanger ending because the prophets come along and everything looks like it's in shambles. And the prophets say, hey, here's how the story is going to end. It's not going to end with deportation, but with a new Davidic king, call him Messiah, Christ, and a new exodus. God's not going to leave his people forever deserted. No, there's going to be a new marriage between Yahweh and his bride. There's going to be a new temple. God's presence will again dwell with his people. And it's not going to end with the walls of Jerusalem destroyed. It's going to end with a new Jerusalem, a new heavens and new earth. So all that was left in shambles toward the end of the Old Testament era that Ezra and Nehemiah are trying to begin to rebuild, and even that doesn't fully succeed, what we're going to see is when the Messiah comes, all those blessings are going to come to fruition in, in Christ. And so here's one thing we have not really talked about almost at all, at least not directly in the series so far. And this is what we want to start focusing on right now. Um, something we haven't focused on is this. According to the Old Testament itself, this is important, according to the Old Testament, not just the New, according to the Old Testament, somehow the Gentiles are going to be included in this end-time restoration of Israel. You follow this? So God predicted in the Old Testament, is he going to restore his people Israel? Yes. Are the northern and southern kingdom going to become reunified in the Davidic king? Yes. And then a blessing is going to reach the nations. And if we're even paying attention at all, we've seen this, right? Look at Genesis 12, the call of Abraham. God said to Abraham, in you all the what? families of the earth will be blessed. Is that the Gentiles who are going to be blessed by the seed of Abraham? Genesis 49, the, the, the king coming from Judah. This is the lion of the tribe of Judah. To him shall be the obedience of Israel. No, way more than that. What does it say? To him shall be the obedience of the peoples. These are the nations who are going to be blessed by the king from the tribe of Judah. So if you're in Psalm 67, we're going to just be brief here. We've talked about this psalm in the past. It's a glorious psalm. Uh, look at just the first couple of verses here. Greg, can you read the first uh, three verses? Yeah. Psalm 67. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us, that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. And the psalm continues on that same vein. So are we seeing, this is, I know this is so basic, but it's about to get more complicated. <laughs> Do we see in the Old Testament that the Gentiles are going to experience the end-time blessing promised to Israel and God's people? Are we seeing that? The blessing to Abraham and his offspring is going to reach the nations. Now, that should not be, that should not be confusing. Where it gets more difficult is I want you to flip to Psalm 87, just a few psalms ahead of us. Psalm 87, and we begin to get more insight in the Old Testament about what this Gentile inclusion in the blessings of God is going to look like. And I'll tell you if, you, if you were back at the time that this was written, I think this psalm would surprise you to some degree. So Psalm 87, it's not a long psalm, but it is an important psalm on the issue of the Gentiles. So I'm just going to read through it here, and I've got at least parts of it are on the screen. Psalm 87, verse 1. On the holy, mountain, on the holy mount stands the city he founded. So let's just be simple here. What city are we talking about? Jerusalem. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things uh, of you are spoken, O city of God. So God is speaking blessing on the city of Jerusalem. That's very obvious, but this next part is a mind bender if you were living back in the BC days. Verse 4. Verse 4 says, Among those who know me, I mention Rahab, a word for Egypt, and Babylon, 
Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Cush. Now stop there. Do those sound like the enemies of Israel in the Old Testament time? Philistia? David fighting the Philistines. You've got uh, Babylon. Does that sound like an opponent of Israel? Uh, Tyre is considered you know, wicked and evil. A bunch of wicked pagan nations just got listed. And the next part is mind-boggling. Look at the middle, look at toward the end of verse 4. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Cush, quote, This one was born there, they say. And of Zion it shall be said, This one and that one were born in her. For the Most High Himself will establish her. The Lord records as He registers the peoples, this one was born there. Singers and dancers alike say, all my springs are in you. Now that, that's something new. We have not talked about this yet. Do you see what it's saying? People who were born in Philistia, people who were born in Babylon, we're talking Babylonians, Philistines, people from Egypt, Cush, etc., Tyre. They are going to be converted to the God of Israel, Yahweh, and in so doing, it's going to be as if they're true Israelites. They're going to be credited as having been born in Mount Zion. It, see, it says it multiple times. This one was born, in, in there, was born there, they say, verse 5, and of Zion it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her. You see, the pagan nations, the Gentiles, they're being included in this blessing of God's people, but the way they're being included is absolutely stunning. The Gentiles are going to be counted as true Israel. It will be as if they were born in Jerusalem. They're going to be called, this one was born in Zion, and they're from Philistia. This one was born in Zion, but they're from Egypt. This one was born in Zion. This is from South Africa. They're coming in. Well, what's going on? God is some, in some mysterious way in the Old Covenant, we're getting a glimpse that when the promise of Abraham reaches the nations, the nations are going to be fully somehow incorporated into Israel. It will be as if they were born in the, home, in, in the capital city of Jerusalem. Do you see? That has major implications uh, for where we're going. And I want to get your thoughts, Greg, but let me quote Peter Gentry here. Look at the screen here. This is a quote from Peter Gentry on the psalm. Look at the blue part first. Thus, the context of Psalm 87 decisively requires that we interpret the, na the nations in Psalm 87 as the foreign nations and not as diaspora Jews. Psalm 87 clearly teaches that the Lord will take the foreign nations, the enemies of Israel, and what? Make them citizens of Zion. This teaching echoes the remarkable statement in Isaiah 19. Listen to Isaiah 19. It's the yellow part right there indented. In that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria. Now, those are not good names in the Old Testament. Egypt and Assyria are not good places. A blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, look, blessed be Egypt, my people, Yahweh says, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, uh, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. Do you see? The wicked pagan nations are going to be on equal footing with Israel. It will be as if they were born in Mount Zion. This is something new that we have not discussed yet, and I think it's going to start shedding light on where we're going in terms of the connection between Gentiles and Israel. Greg, any thoughts so far on this section? Well, it, it would be mind-blowing to read that because these are people who can't enter the assembly of the Lord. Um, you know, they, they can't offer sacrifices. They can't you know, unless, you know, they, they can become Jewish converts in a sense, but they lose their previous identity. Um, and it's like to, to the Israelite of the day, that's unthinkable. I mean, you, you know, you have your, you had Rahab and you had some other people come in and uh, mm -hmm. make professions of faith and join themselves to Israel's God, but whole nations. I mean, this, this is just not, not on the, the horizon uh, for a faithful Jew at this point. It's, it's just not. 
I mean, Assyria, I mean, yeah, you had Jonah go and preach, but that was just a temporary thing. They ended up getting destroyed eventually. If you read, you know, Jonah's the positive. You get to Nahum, you find out, oh, well, the next generation turned away. They're gone. They're dead. God wipes them out. I often say Nahum is the book Jonah wished he had written. Yes. Oh, absolutely. When was destroyed. Absolutely. And so you just don't see Egypt coming to, to faith in Yahweh. You don't really see Assyria doing that except for maybe a temporary relenting of their evil at the preaching of a, a Hebrew prophet. And so what, what Isaiah is saying, what we see in Psalm 87 is, I mean, it, it's an expansion on what God said to Abraham, and you all the families of the earth will be blessed. But what it's doing is it's bringing an equalizing factor into this. Before, you might think, okay, we've got Israel, God's people, and you've got first all class the, citizens all, yeah, Israel. first class Israel, second class t- a tag, on, tag along everybody else. And now we're starting to see, wait a minute, everybody's going to have the same first class status. And so the question we need to be asking then is how? How is that going to happen? Um, what's the mechanism? Like, what's that going to look like? Um, and obviously, people struggled with that in Jesus' day uh, in the first century church. <clears throat> a lot of the Judaizers and various things, they had a hard time with Gentile inclusion uh, for the very reasons we mentioned. But you start to read this and you start to say, anything less than full inclusion for the Gentiles at some point is going to go contrary to God's plan. Yeah, so just, I'm just going to flash a couple quick verses on the screen from the New Testament, and then we're going to go back to the book of Isaiah. So just look here. Galatians 4, our plan next Sunday is to spend the whole Sunday really uh, camped out in the book of Galatians. So that's an important book on this topic, but just a little sneak peek here. Talking to mostly Gentile Christians, hear that? Mostly Gentile Christians. The Galatians were not mostly Jews. Look what Paul says to the Gentile Christians, to, to, to most of us, right? But the Jerusalem above is free. The heavenly Jerusalem is free, and... She is our mother. Does that sound like this one will be counted as born there? And what, what's just happened is the category went from Jerusalem was the Jerusalem on earth, the earthly Jerusalem. And what do we find? As Paul starts talking, he starts saying that the fulfillment of Jerusalem is not the earthly city across the Atlantic Ocean. The earthly fulfillment of Jerusalem is heaven, the heavenly Jerusalem. And she is your mother. If you are a born-again Christian, it's because you were born in Zion. The heavenly Jerusalem gave birth to you. She is our mother, and she, she, she gave birth. Look at verse 28. Now you brothers, talking to Jew, Gentile Christians mostly, you brothers like who? Isaac. You don't get more Jewish than Isaac, right? You <laughs> brothers like Isaac are children of promise. Gentiles are like Isaac. That sounds like full inclusion, doesn't it? True sons of Abraham. Verse 29. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh, Ishmael, persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. Are we born according to the Spirit as Christians? And does that mean that our mother is the Jerusalem above? Are we true Israel in Christ? Do you see where we're going with this series? Okay. Look at John chapter 3. Greg mentioned this to me this morning, and it was not on my radar screen, but it's a great reference. Everyone knows the verse. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, Nicodemus, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And that word again, if you look at any translation, the ESV has a footnote, same with other translations. The ESV footnote says the word again in Greek has a double meaning. It could be translated what? Born from above. The Greek is purposely ambiguous and can can mean both born again or born from above. I think Jesus means a double meaning. 
When you're born again, guess what? You're born from the heavenly Jerusalem above. I think there's a double meaning, which goes all the way back to Psalm 87, and it traces through Galatians and other places. I think this is consistent. Now, Greg, can you give us a word about Hebrews 12? Uh, let me just read a couple verses, and then I'll get, get your thoughts. <laughs> Hebrews 12, I'm going to read a couple verses here. It's verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched. He's talking about Mount Sinai. A blazing fire, darkness, gloom, a tempest. But you, this is New Testament Christians, you have come to Mount Zion. Is he talking about the place across the Atlantic Ocean? No, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Do you see the new covenant is intimately connected to Jerusalem, but it's not the Jerusalem over the Atlantic, it's the Jerusalem above. It's the Jerusalem who is our mother. And if we were born from above, that makes us true and full citizens of God's true people. Greg, thoughts about what this text is getting at? Yeah, um, lots of things we could say here. One thing, uh, I think I mentioned this to you when we were talking today, um, and this, this is going to bust some categories in a good way. Um, the, the whole difference sometimes between like literal, <coughs> excuse me, literal and spiritual, it's almost like what's, you know, if literal is earthly and physical, spiritual is something else and almost kind of less. Okay. Um, here's the thing. There was a literal city of Jerusalem in Israel. There is a literal heavenly Jerusalem that we just don't have physical access to. Both are literally real places. One is physical, one is spiritual, but both are still literally real, meaning they're actually there. There is a heavenly Jerusalem where God dwells, where Jesus is, where the angels are, where the spirits of the righteous made perfect uh, dwell in the presence of God. It's not somehow less because it's not physical. It's literally there. It is a real literal place where God and his people are dwelling. And so, but think about this. Think about this. Um, <clears throat> it's putting the emphasis on the heavenly realities that we are longing to be made, um, to, to be joined together in a new heaven and a new earth. And that's the beauty, uh, if we want to get ahead of ourselves, of Revelation at the end, when it talks about, I saw, you know, heaven and new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, meaning what, what, we, uh, what we're born from, our identity, our citizenship is where, Paul says, in heaven, making more sense with that now, that, that heavenly reality is one day going to be brought back down to a renewed earth and guess what? Earth and heaven were never meant to be separated. They're going to be joined again together. And the point is, the point is, the Jerusalem that matters is not the one you can see with your eyes. You can be born there and be way far away from the kingdom of God. But if you are born from the Jerusalem above, you automatically belong to the kingdom of God and you're a part of God's people and God's plan. So what we're seeing is we're seeing some of the glorious transformation that happens in the New Covenant, mm -hmm. how things work here. And if you've got your Bible there, turn to Isaiah 42, and we're going to spend some time in Isaiah. <coughs> I, I don't want to get, I don't, I mean, it would be nice to spend a longer time on this. We're going to have to move pretty quickly, but I, I want to try to set something up here. Isaiah 42. I mentioned this briefly a few couple months ago in a sermon, but let me just put a little outline on the screen and... Uh, I want, to, I want you to see this. So, this is from Peter Gentry. I think it's a very helpful outline. Honestly, I wouldn't, I wouldn't mind, if you, if, you went on, if you screenshot this, this image or just kind of saved it for yourself and then went this week, and just kind of, even if you didn't read every verse, if you just sort of skim through and work through these texts, I think you will see that this outline makes this part of Isaiah suddenly come alive. 
Until you understand the outline of this part of Isaiah, it's very hard, it's very easy to get lost. And so this outline is extremely helpful, I think. So just real quick here. Second half of Isaiah starts in chapter 40. You could argue it starts in 38. We won't go into a debate. Uh, from 40 through 55, and all, it also goes to 66. But we're looking at 40 to 55, this important section of Isaiah. It's one of the most glorious parts of the Old Testament text. And here's what you see. Without getting into every detail on this screen, I want to point out something important here. So if you could just follow me here, this section I want to try to explain for a moment. And if you get this, this part of Isaiah will just pop. It will become three-dimensional next time you read it, and you'll go, wow. At least that was my experience. When I saw this, it really helped me. And he's not the only one who teaches this kind of outline for this section. So here, here's what you see. In the second part of Isaiah, the later part of Isaiah, especially in the, in the 40s and early 50s, what you get is this. You get promises of redemption for Israel, and there's two kinds of redemption Israel needs, okay? They're in, he's predicting Babylonian captivity, so follow. The two kinds of redemption are redemption from exile, which means physical relocation to Israel, which is what we saw in Ezra. Remember Cyrus sent them back? Remember that? The other kind of redemption they need is way more important than where you live. What is it? It's the spiritual forgiveness and transformation. Now watch this. The release from physical bondage is this section of Isaiah. Then the promise of spiritual restoration and forgiveness are those verses of Isaiah. And then, who is God going to choose to bring about these two different kinds of redemption? He's got two liberators. One we've talked about with Ezra is Cyrus, that pagan Persian king who God used mightily. He, remember, he liberated the people and sent them home. And Cyrus is named several times in those verses. And God says, okay, how am I going to redeem my people from physical exile? I'm going to use a physical pagan king. And he doesn't even know me, the Lord says. He doesn't know me, but I'm going to use him. That's amazing. But then the part that we really, really care about as Christians today, how are we going to receive spiritual forgiveness and transformation? It's the suffering servant. But it's not just Isaiah 53. You'll notice it's Isaiah 49 through 53, and that's where we're going to get. So the, su the suffering servant is going to be mentioned several times here, and his work corresponds with this section. Cyrus's work corresponds to this section. And when you see that, those chapters of Isaiah just pop like three-dimensionally when you read it. So just for a moment, let's look at Isaiah 42. We're going to look at this, the servant of the Lord here. Verse 1. I'm going to skip through here. Behold my servant, whom I uphold. I'm going to argue this is Jesus clearly, okay? My chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. Does that verse sound like the baptism of Jesus? The Lord is delighting in his servant, and the spirit is poured out on the servant? Does that sound like the baptism of Jesus? This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. The spirit descends like a dove. This is the baptism of Jesus, right? And then it says he is going to bring forth justice just to Israel. He's going to bring forth justice to the nations, okay? Remember verse 3, a bruised reed he will not break. Verse 4, he will not be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. The coastlands wait for his law. That's the nations. Verse 6, I'm the Lord. Skip ahead. I will give you as a covenant. That's the new covenant for the people. A light for the nations. Verse 10, sing his praise from the end of the earth. The coastlands and their inhabitants, let them give glory to the Lord. Okay, now just pause here. Do we see a servant who is going to come and reach the nations during the time of the new covenant? Yes. Now, if that's a little confusing, let's skip ahead to chapter 49 for a moment. This is a clearer, I think, and I want to just spend a moment on this because this is so important for where we're going. Isaiah 49. And once again, I just want to point at the screen because there's so many words. I've got to cut out words just to get to the point. So you can read the whole text later. I'm not skipping anything important. I just want to show you on the screen here what I'm looking at. The yellow words here are referring to Jesus or the servant of the Lord. Okay, He's, that's the yellow. The orange is referring to the nation of Israel. 
I don't want to go too quickly here. So, so the yellow is the servant of the Lord. The orange is the nation of Israel. And blue are the nations or the Gentiles. Okay, you got that? So th this is really significant. Because look what the servant of the Lord, it's going to be Jesus. They don't know his name yet. But here's what the servant of the Lord is called. Look at this amazing verse. The Lord called me and he said to me, you are my servant, Israel. So the coming savior is called, this individual man is called Israel. That's weird because he's a person, not a nation. So this man, this servant is named Israel. Jesus is being named Israel in this text. Now keep going. Verse five. And now the Lord who formed me, that's Jesus who is Israel, to be his servant, look what he's gonna do. To bring Jacob back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him. Is Israel coming to save Israel? Is a man named Israel, a man who's titled Israel, coming to restore the nation of Israel? Yes. Isn't that strange? Now keep going. God says, so God is speaking to Jesus, the Father speaking to Jesus. He says to Jesus, it is too light a thing that you, the servant Jesus, should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you, Jesus, a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. This is incredible. A servant named Israel, who is sinless and perfect, is going to save the nation of Israel and also reach the nations, the Gentiles. Now, why, why does this matter? Let me quote this, and I want to throw it back to Greg here. Let me quote uh, Peter Gentry again. How can the servant be both the nation, Israel, and the deliverer of the nation? Are you following how confusing this is? How can one man be called Israel and him, him go save the nation, Israel? That's perplexing. Here's what Gentry says. I think he's right. There's only one possible solution that resolves this conundrum fairly. And Isaiah has prepared us for this in the, the first part of his work. Here it is. The servant must be the future king described earlier in Isaiah. As an individual, the king can say, I am Israel. Because why? Does the king embody and represent the nation? If the king says we're going to war, guess who's going to war? The nation. If the king says one thing, guess who's saying it? The nation. Why? He's the representative head of the nation. So how could one man be called Israel and go save Israel? The answer is he's the king of Israel. If Jesus is the servant king, he is Israel, embodied in himself as a representative, and he also is coming to save Israel and save the nations. Okay, let me finish the quote here. As an individual, the king can say, I am Israel. The king can represent the nation as a whole, yet he can be distinguished from Israel. Greg, this is confusing. Help us out here. What, what's going on in this, in this text? Well, it's no different from what we've already seen when we look at Adam, who stands as the covenant head of humanity. Um, I mean, we weren't there physically sinning with Adam like by his side, and yet his sin counts for us. Why? Because you have such a close connection between a covenant head, a representative, and those that he represents uh, in the truest sense of the word. And so it's not a new idea. Um, you know, Gentry talks about the king doing this. Um, so it's not a new idea in Scripture, or it shouldn't be for us, that one man can be spoken of as the whole nation. I mean, it just it makes sense. It, it, it makes sense within the biblical storyline uh, and, and what we've seen. And so why this matters, guys, is one objection that could be raised um, you know, to the way we speak about things here. You've heard Mark say it, Scott say it um, a lot. You know, Jesus is like the true and better David. And people are like, well, or, or the true and better Israel. And be like, well, is that just forcing um, something on Jesus that the Bible doesn't actually say because it fits with your system and it sounds good? 
What we see here in Isaiah is one of the clearest exegetical out-of-the-text warrants for calling Jesus the true and better Israel. Because it literally says it you are Israel. It literally calls Him Israel. Okay? And so we're not speaking out of both sides of our mouths. We're not making things up. We're simply trying to reflect what the Scripture teaches. And so here's what's significant about this. If the Bible clearly teaches something in one place, and it's, it's beyond a shadow of a doubt that it's teaching that, we have to accept it as true. Okay? And I think it is without any shadow of doubt that through Isaiah, God is call, calling His servant, the Messiah, the future Savior, is calling Him Israel. And so the significance of that when we get into the New Testament is going to be absolutely huge. Um, which means then that Jesus can truly stand as the nation, in, the, in a sense, and as a representative of the nation. Um, and so what happens to Him, what He does, affects everyone who is included in Him. That's going to make sense of Paul's argument in Romans 5 when he talks about, you know, sin came through one man, um, and then like justification and life through, through the, the next man, through um, the second Adam and stuff like that. And so, but this is so huge. We're not trying to make stuff up. We're trying to be faithful to the text of Scripture. And so it's literally true that we should say Jesus is the true and better Israel because the servant is going to do for the nation what the nation desperately needed and never could do for itself. Um, and so what, what is, you know, that's what more we're going to un, you know, unpack. But what is this servant going to do? What's it going to look like for him to stand in the place of the nation and accomplish uh, what the nation could never do. Greg, I'm skipping ahead on slides mm -hmm. past the little, uh, the, the couple of images there. If you have your scripture, turn to Ephesians chapter 2. And we want to spend the rest of the time camping out here because this is a great New Testament text to help us solve a little bit of the mystery that we're talking about here. So uh, uh, he, he, uh, Ephesians chapter 2. <coughs> And let me take another moment here to set this up. So look back at the screen as you turn there. Here's the question. How are the Old Testament pieces meant by God to be put together to make sense of how the Gentiles relate to Israel in the New Covenant era of fulfillment? How, how are we to see this? And let me put on the screen what I think is the guess. Okay? So if you look here at the screen, I think this is how most Jewish people thought at the time of Jesus. Something like this. Okay? So let's just read through it. The common assumption at the time of Jesus was something like this. And I would argue even Peter the Apostle would have thought this way. I think he did think this way. Here, something like this. Here we go. Here are the three things Jewish people would have expected, and they did not get it quite right. Jesus corrects us on this. Number one, the Lord will restore Israel from exile, reunify the northern and southern kingdoms through the future Davidic Messiah. That's true. Number two, then the nations would see God's glory in Israel restored and flock to Jerusalem and receive God's law and instruction... And then here's where it gets a little tricky. Then Gentiles would begin converting in large numbers to Israel's God, Yahweh, through faith and repentance, and here it is, would join Israel, how? By converting to Judaism. Of course. The males would be circumcised, 
They would adopt the full Mosaic law and ceremonies and animal sacrifice and Sabbath and all the different new moons and festivals and Passover and, uh, and the Feast of Booths. Of course, that's, what, that's, that's the picture. So God is going to reunify Israel at home from exile, bring them back, reunify them. The northern and southern kingdom are going to become unified in the Davidic king. And then what? They're going to become a shining light on a hill, the highest hill in the world, it says. And then all the nations will flock in. And how will they, how will they be converted? They will repent of sin, throw away their idols, trust alone in Yahweh, and become Jews. Of course. That's just common sense. If you're living at the time of Jesus, that's what you think is going to happen. That's the future. The kingdom's going to come and Israel will be supreme and all the nations will come in and there'll be circumcision followed by a full adopting of the Mosaic law, all of Torah, all law keeping. That's what you expect. And here is the mystery that the New Testament unveils that was not clearly seen by anybody before Jesus just tore the veil away. Nobody had put these pieces together correctly. Remember I talked about puzzle pieces last Sunday in the sermon. You can put puzzle pieces together or letters together in a different way. They had not put the pieces together the right way. And Ephesians 2 and 3, we'll cover as much as we can in nine minutes here. Uh, this is how Paul unveils this amazing mystery. Greg, can you just start reading in verse 11? We'll read through the end of chapter 2. Yeah, let's do that. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what, is called the, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Can, can I pause mm -hmm. you there? Do you see here? The common Jewish conception would have been, how do, you, how do Gentiles get in? They believe in the true God and they receive circumcision. That's why they're called either the uncircumcised or the circumcised. Either you're outside the covenant, you're uncircumcised pagan Gentiles, or you're in the covenant people, you're circumcised. That's how it's viewed. So they're thinking in terms of Mosaic laws, how you get in or out. And Paul's about to say, has nothing to do with physical circumcision, has nothing to do with ethnicity. It has to do with whether you're united to the man who is Israel whether you're united to the Messiah. If you're united to Him, it doesn't matter your ethnicity, doesn't matter whether you keep ceremonial law, you're in the people of God and we're all equal in Christ. That was new. That was not fully revealed in, the, in, in, in all the detail in the Old Testament as it is here. So let's keep going, verse 13. Uh, 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through Him we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit." Greg, there's a, there's a mountain of information, but just any, any opening reflections on this text? Um, well, it's very clear that it is, like you said, picking up on the distinction between Jews 
and Gentiles, what separated them uh, from one another as, as people. And verse 13, I think, is the key text here. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And so that bringing near doesn't just mean, well, we're closer than we were. Like, that's not what it's saying. Like, you were far off, now He's brought you a little closer. Um, Not at all what He's getting at. Because again, remember, what does He say? Verse 12, you were separated from the Messiah, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, no hope without God. So in saying He has brought us near... Let's look at a couple of things he says here. One, verse 14, he is our peace. So whatever hostility there was between Jew and Gentile is now gone because Jesus has made peace. There's no division um, anymore. And then look at the end of verse 15. talks about creating in himself one new man. It's literally out of the two. So making peace. In verse 16, might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So we have a a new man, a new humanity, a new people, Jew and Gentile, united together, how? In and through Christ and His blood. All right? But let's keep going. Look at verse 17. He preached peace to you who were far off, peace to those who were near. So we both needed the message of peace, Jew and Gentile. There wasn't like the Jews needed it less, the Gentiles needed it more. Um, look at verse 18, and now this is where it really starts to hit home. For through Him, through Jesus, we both, Jew and Gentile, both have access in one Spirit to the Father. So the Gentiles' access to God is exactly the same as the Jews. Okay? Let's keep going. Picking up on this language that he's already talked about, so then... You are no longer strangers and aliens. That's why I said it's important. He's not just bringing us closer than we were. This bringing us from being far off and bringing us closer, bringing us near, what he's saying is you are now on the same footing before God as the Jews if you're a Gentile. Because look at the language. You're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You're a fellow citizen. Meaning whatever rights, whatever promises, whatever inheritance that the the citizens have, you now have in exactly the same way and to the same degree. There's no divisions within the people of God as though Jews, yeah, Gentiles, you're now God's people too in some spiritual way, but there's still all this other stuff that the Jews have apart from you. That is not what the language is communicating here. And we're going to see that in more than just where we are right now. Your fellow citizens, meaning whatever a Jew has, is now yours as a Gentile in every conceivable way and to every conceivable degree. Now, amen. I, I'm just going to keep going with what Greg's saying. If, if you're still in Ephesians 2, I'll, I'll use the screen here. You back up just a little bit and look what it says. Talking about the blue here is Gentiles. It says you, the uncircumcised, you were at that time, look, separated from Christ, the Jewish Messiah, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You weren't part of Israel. That was one of the curses of being a Gentile. You weren't part of Israel. And it says strangers to the covenants of promise without hope, without God in the world. And then just a few verses later, the part Greg just read, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens of what? The new true in time Israel. I don't know how else to read this text. You were strangers to Israel. Now you're fellow citizens. You're, you're, you're no longer aliens. You're now, you're now saints together. And look, Gentiles make up 
the holy temple in the Lord? Like you mentioned, Gentiles weren't even allowed inside the temple in the Old Covenant era. And now Gentiles make up the temple of God's presence. He dwells within us. And so this is a kind of access unparalleled by anyone in the Old Testament era. And it's equally something given to the Gentile as well as the Jew. We're really out of time, but let me just real quick, chapter 3, keep going here. Let me show you another quick thing here. Chapter 3, look at the first few verses, and we'll wrap up. Verse 1 of chapter 3. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to be me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, think Old Testament times, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, think New Testament times, so stop, is something being revealed that's fresh and new, but it's rooted in the Old Testament. Yes, and here it is, verse 6, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now, now just, we'll wrap up on this point. If you are a Gentile, and you trust in Jesus, right, if we're in Christ, we were already told that Jesus is the true offspring of Abraham. He is true Israel, right? He's the truly obedient Israelite. And if you're a Gentile and you're in Christ, guess what you are? You're Israel in Jesus, do you see this? If Jesus is true Israel, the truly obedient son of Abraham, if you trust in Jesus, you're united with Christ, and now his righteousness is yours, but so is his status as true Israel. So you are now counted as a true Israelite in Christ. It's not that you are Israel, it's that you are Israel in Jesus. So you don't have to, you don't have to adopt the ceremonial laws, you simply trust Jesus. You no longer need the badges of circumcision and ceremonial laws, you just need the badge of I'm with Jesus. And now you are a fellow heir, member of the household of Christ. You're the true temple. You're the true in time restored Israel of God. And there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. We are all one in Christ Jesus. So I, I think that when this begins to click, it really changes how we put our whole Bible together. Yeah. Closing thought and then prayer, Greg. Um, amen and amen. Like, well, there's some of this we'll have to come back to next week. There's yes. some, some Isaiah passages that I think we need to look at. Um, just to strengthen even more uh, what we're seeing. But yes, um, you're a fellow heir. You belong to the same people um, as the Jews. You, you are part of the true people of God. Therefore, you're a part of true Israel if your faith is in Jesus. Now let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we have been able to touch on some really weighty and glorious things in terms of who we are as the people of God. And I pray that uh, this would land on us in all the right ways. Lord, give us uh, grace and wisdom as we think on this and ponder this, Lord, as we leave uh, the Sunday school time. Um, and Lord, I pray that our, our hearts would be encouraged, our, our faith would be strengthened as we, we consider what it means to be a Christian. Uh, it means we belong to true Israel. And we know that ultimately is Jesus um, and so God just uh, revolutionize in some ways if we need it, how we think about ourselves, how we think about the church, um, God, because what a, what a, a glorious people, uh, glorious because of its union with Jesus, what a people you have created uh, through the gospel. Um, and Lord, what a privilege it is to belong to that people. Uh, Lord, be with us as we go into the main service, and we just pray that the hope of the gospel and your word would be clear. 
And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.